This episode of the All Things Music Podcast is sponsored by Louder Than Life, September 27th, 28th, and 29th in Louisville, Kentucky, the Highland Festival Grounds at KY Expo Center, featuring Slipknot, Stained, Day to Remember, Guns N' Roses, Godsmack, Ice Cube, Disturbed, Rob Zombie, Marilyn Manson, and more. Get your tickets now at www.louderthanlifefestival.com. Tune in to All Things Music, presented by Liquid Sound Records. Here are your hosts, Ryan Katz and Ian Illyrian. What is up? Welcome to another new episode of All Things Music, presented by Liquid Sound Records. We got a really special episode for you today. Uh, from a guest that I honestly could never have expected to be to interview uh, in the past, and I'm really excited to uh, you know bring this interview to you. Um, and you know, at the end of the interview, I'm going to wrap things up with a little bit of a summary of of uh, you know uh, how how it went and how everything felt, and it's just a really, really, really cool experience. So, um, don't want to take up too much of your time uh, with me rambling on here. So, without further ado. Uh, I want to present to you Danny Hayes, CEO of Danny Wimmer Presents. Welcome. We are here with Danny Hayes, the CEO of Danny Wimmer Presents. How are you doing this morning, Danny? I'm great, Ryan. Uh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. You know, I appreciate you taking the time out to make some time for us. Uh, this is a pretty big deal for me in particular because... I've been a regular at the DWP festivals for as long as I can remember, to be honest. Uh, so it's pretty cool. Uh, it's very cool you made yourself so accessible to me and everyone else who is listening. Uh, because I'm sure a lot of people have intrigue as far as what goes on behind the scenes. And I think this will enlighten all of us quite a bit. Uh, so being that it is the first time I've talked to you, I kind of want to give everybody a background of what led you to this position. Uh, more importantly, what challenges you faced early on and things of that nature as far as, you know, from what I've read, you're close friends with Danny Wimmer, obviously, for a while. And I kind of wanted to get some insight from you on that as well. So with that being said, how did this come to fruition to where it is today? Sure. So, you know, I was, I was a music lawyer for about 25 years before I went full-time into the concert business. And Danny Wimmer was one of my clients when he was an A&R executive at Epic Records and then Atlantic Records. Uh, and we worked on a lot of bands together, including Stained, Puddle of Mud, um, a band called Operator. So we, we had a pretty rich history. We kept getting closer and closer as, as friends. Um, he had started... Uh, or was starting Rock on the Range on the side uh, from, you know, wasn't part of what he was doing for Atlantic, but he was very frustrated that he couldn't get stained on, you know, Coachella or Lollapalooza. And he said, you know what, let's just, I'm going to start the Super Bowl of Rock. And um, I was his lawyer on that deal, and I started to see the success that he started to have with Rock on the Range and then Carolina Rebellion and so he, 
uh, he came up with a show called Welcome to Rockville in Jacksonville, and I actually invested in that show. Um, and then that led to an ongoing investment with him in shows, which then led to the foundation, uh, the formation of Danny Wimmer Presents. Uh, somewhere along the, the way, Danny left the A&R business to go full-time into the festival business, and then about a year and a half later, convinced me, because he's a very persuasive guy, convinced me to leave my law practice and become his full-time partner in the company. Right. Uh, that's a very big decision, obviously. I'm sure that it wasn't easy to make. Uh, when you did leave your practice and ended up at DWP, what were some of the initial challenges? Like, I'm sure there are some pretty significant differences between being an entertainment lawyer and being a full-time CEO for a festival promoter. Well, the biggest challenge is that I actually knew nothing about festivals. And it, it was so fascinating to learn how little, as a lawyer, how little I really knew about the operational side of a festival versus you know the negotiating or deal side. And so there was this very steep learning curve uh, in, in just really coming to understand the business and the mechanics of a festival. That definitely makes sense. Uh, something I wanted to backtrack on with you, uh, something you said earlier, as far as the Super Bowl of rock, so to speak. I've heard that many times, whether it's from your guys in a press release or just kind of the reputation of what Rock on the Range was and what Sonic Temple is. Uh, was there any specific reason? I know you knew Danny at this point. I just don't know if you have the specific answer to this question. But is there a reason you guys chose Columbus to be the focal point of all the loudest month type of festivals that you guys do? Yeah, it, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was a very specific decision, and it ultimately became our business plan. Um, Danny recognized uh, that Columbus set where it sits in the population. At the time, it was surrounded by a lot of radio stations and a lot of feeder markets. It didn't have an active amphitheater um, and it didn't have any, you know, real music festivals. It, it was an underserved market, and rock fans are kind of an underserved audience. And so, you know, he wanted to bring bring the music to the audience versus having it in Las Vegas, for example, and saying, "Hey, you know, everybody come here." And it was all about six hour drive. You know, how how many people can drive within six, you know, within a six hour driving distance? And how much, at the time, how much radio support can we get within that six-hour radius? Uh, and then that became our business model as we, as we established other festivals, you know, be it Jacksonville, Charlotte, Louisville, Sacramento. They were all picked uh, on the same sort of principles. Hey, Danny, this is Ian. Hey, Ian. Question for you. I read in a recent interview with you guys about politics and how it plays out in the music world. The uprising of politics and the angst that's kind of there. I'm wondering, what's your take on that? Uh, when, you, when you say, when you're when talking about politics, because I, I deal with all the political issues, that, that's very much my role in, in dealing with local and state politics and politicians and stakeholders and communities. So um, I, I get very deeply involved in that. So are you, are you talking about more like at the festival level, or are you talking about like how does national politics uh, influence the festival business? 
Well, nationally, but now I'm curious about locally, since you brought it up. What does that entail? Yeah, well, local politics is the ball game. Um, because, you know, when we come in with a hard rock festival, there's that misperception and bias that our audience is dangerous and rowdy and, you know, many, many jurisdictions and cities don't want it initially. And it takes a lot of convincing to get them to understand that they have a fundamental misperception and that really it's the country art, you know, country festivals and the EDM festivals and some of the urban festivals that actually propose greater threats and we're really proud of our audience and sort of the the statistics when you look at the amount of crime or injury it's almost non-existent at our festivals so but there's a lot of glad handing and and getting people to be comfortable especially in the beginning now that we have a reputation it's very easy for me to say to a new city hey you know what do me a favor call me you know call the people, folks in Columbus, call the folks in Louisville, and if you don't like what you hear, you know I'll never call you back. Um, you know, so we have that reputation now, so people can vouch for us, and it makes it a lot easier. But it was a, it was a crucial part of growing our business. Now here's a word from one of our sponsors. Louder Than Life returns September 27th through the 29th. Highland Festival Grounds at the Kentucky Expo Center. With Guns N' Roses, Slipknot, Disturbed, Rob Zombie, and more. Go to louderthanlifefestival.com for everything. Uh, something that I've been curious about, especially with you being an entertainment lawyer, but also your time at DWP, uh, you worked with a lot of people. And you already said a bunch of names, impressive, top-tier, rock-formatted artists and bands. Uh, is there anybody that you worked with, whether it's the artists themselves or the management or an agent, uh, that you've enjoyed working uh, with and stand out to you, quite frankly, uh, as far as seeing a name pop up that you guys are considering purchasing the talent for and you get really excited to work with that specific client? For, for me, it's... It's, a lot of it is for me is stuff I enjoy is artists that I used to get paid to represent that I'm now writing checks to and have a long history with. That that's what's particularly fun for me. Um, you know Chester, you know Chester Bennington, you know uh, God rest his soul. Whenever we had him, that was really special for me. You know I was I was part of the team that put Lincoln Park together and helped put Chester in the band. And so it, it was always exciting to see him. Uh, I have a very close relationship with, with the guys in Stained, who I represented for a long time, and love seeing those guys. Th- those That, for me, is really sort of the... Avenge sp- Sevenfold's another one that I just get so happy when they're playing our shows and I can see those guys. Those, those are the special moments for me. And it's funny you bring that up because I was so fortunate to see uh, Lincoln Park in 2015. I believe they were the last band to play uh, that weekend at Rock on the Range at the time. And I had been waiting to see them my entire life, and I was fortunate enough to see them, thanks to you, uh, before, unfortunately, he tragically passed away. Uh, And then you have Chris Cornell in 2017. Unfortunately, you know, similar circumstances, um, except they hadn't played yet. Uh, it was right before uh, Soundgarden was supposed to perform. I believe it was a night or two before. 
and then this past year with Keith Flint and the Prodigy, it just seems unfortunately like this is happening way too often, but something you guys do have to manage, um, and it's something that's very sensitive, uh, very unexpected, and there's a certain way to do it properly, and I'm at, really I'm asking you how you guys do it because you seem to do it extremely well from an outsider's perspective. I appreciate that. It's you know it it, it it's personally painful because in, in many of those instances we know those people personally. We have close relationships with them and their teams and their you know their their camps. Um, you know some of them are funerals I've attended. Uh, but you also, I mean, you know, it's age-old adage, right? The show must go on, and yet you have to find a way to honor them and still make them a part of it um, and still try to deliver an experience to the audience that they're, they're going to appreciate and relate to and, and have that emotional moment that that's somewhat cathartic for all of us. I mean, uh, what uh, Papa Roach did for Keith was just... Yeah, that was like otherworldly i mean you know i know it's not exactly the same as the prodigy doing it themselves but when he when they performed firestarter uh i mean that was just a very emotional you could tell uh not just you know the band but everybody the crowd it was all very uh a magical experience yeah it, it was something i mean we we i would say probably most of the dwp staff uh, all stood at the soundboard to watch that, and it was very emotional for us. Uh, and it was, you know, uh, Jacoby just did an unbelievable job, and it, you know, I think it was a very special music moment. Something that you know, under the putting aside the circumstances, I'm I'm very proud to have been a part of memorializing Keith in that way. In 2014, you guys made the top. 100 event promoters how do you get to that level and how do you get to say the top 10 yeah we were you know it, we're happy we were happy about it but danny and i are both very ambitious and competitive people and all we could look at was hey how many people do we have to how many tickets do we have to sell to get higher up on the list what would you say to people um aspiring to get to that level of the top 100 or even the top 10 um it's 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 a lot harder than it was um but you know the market's just so crowded now and i think it's all about specialization and understanding what's going to differentiate yourself and not buying into the myth that you could just buy your way to success and that you know if you have big enough talent it's not any longer and if you build it they will come model you've got to really know your place in the in the universe of festivals very true very true uh something that i wanted to touch on here is the fact that you've made yourself so accessible to the fans whether it's posting in social media groups or other media outlets just asking for feedback wanting to know what you did right what you could improve on etc uh, and that's just not something that we see today in general um you know especially in your position or other festivals. I know Kevin Lyman does a really good job with that as well, but is this something that you've always done or more something you've learned is a good thing to do for the fans over time? Because like I said, 
it's a pretty rare thing to see uh, in this industry these days. Thanks. No, it's it's actually extremely new. It's we're probably it's start. I would say it's it literally started at Epicenter this year. Um, I, I, it was very frustrating for us to see the, a lot of the negativity that was going on, knowing how hard the team had worked in in trying to put together an incredible event against a lot of obstacles and you know and it's not the audience's job to know the obstacles but when 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 you see your team getting beat up and demoralized and literally box office personnel are trying to quit on the on the spot and you know I'm sitting them down and trying to rally the troops I just said you know I I got to step up and address the audience more directly because they're operating under mis- a lot of misperception, and that's our fault. And I get that, and that kind of moves me to my next question, which is the whole damage control situation. You know, as a lawyer, you definitely understand it's just a big part of the job, whether it's justified or not. And uh, most of the time, it's not, honestly, um, because fans sometimes can, you know, get caught up in the moment, uh, whether it be rain delays, storm delays, the whole situation this year at Epicenter. It's just something that's very, you know, rock in a hard place. Uh, I don't know how you cope with it, but obviously do you do it extremely well. Uh, is it an internal struggle sometimes where you know there's no right answer and you kind of just have to, you know, take what's given? No, I don't look at it as damage control at all. Um, I, I, what, what I've come to realize is that it's transparency and what can someone say about the truth? If we made a mistake, we made a mistake. Let's own it, you know, and, and say, hey, you know, we, we, we blew that and we're going to have to do a better job next year. If it's conditions beyond our control, let people know it's conditions beyond our control. Danny and I at the company level about a year and a half ago realized we needed to become much more transparent with our employees as the company's gotten bigger and bigger. You know, when you had five people, everybody knew everything. When we got to 30 people, you start to realize that you're just inadvertently not telling people stuff. And so we made an effort to become more transparent internally. And I think I've now focused that externally and I'm just trying to be more transparent with the audience so they can make an educated you know, understanding of what's going on. So Ryan and I have heard that um, DWP is diving into the country festival scene with your um, event called Hometown Rising. How do you bridge the gap between rock and country music? <clears throat> I look at it a couple different ways. You know, one is that the line between country and rock is a lot thinner than, than I think, you know, that I think radio wants you to believe. Um, and it's also just part of a, of a long-term plan that we made in Louisville to roll out multiple events consecutively of different genres. So it was, a, it was sort of a very deliberate growth plan in Louisville. Yeah, and speaking of Louisville, here's another word from one of our sponsors. Louisville, Kentucky, Louder Than Life returns September 27th through the 29th. Highland Festival Grounds at the Kentucky Expo Center with Guns N' Roses. Slipknot. Disturbed. Rob Zombie, Godsmack, Marilyn Manson, plus Stain and Ice Cube. Go to LouderThanLifeFestival.com for all ticket and lineup information. Louder Than Life. 
that actually brings me to my next question, which I don't want to get too much into the divorce with AEG just because we've all read about it and all the drama that goes along with it, but is it hard to ignore at the same time, uh, you know, being the only company in charge this year probably was an adjustment, but probably in a positive way. Uh, did you feel more freedom with the creativeness of what you could do and a feeling of, you know, less restriction and more making it your own uh, rather than having to split that duty with someone else? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that was the, a primary motivation. Uh, um, there's probably three or four driving factors, and that was one of them. We had a very different vision of what that festival should be. It was frustrating when you know rock and the cape was the 20th largest festival in the world but it it didn't feel to us that it was getting holding its stature you know like as festivals were getting bigger and bigger and more and more elaborate we felt it was stagnated and wanted to give our fans the experience that we envisioned and sonic temple allowed us you know, like you're saying, took took some of the cuffs off and allowed us to do things that we just couldn't have done as as in, under the partnership. And going with that, being you're the only one now, I'm sure there's a lot more work on your plate, and it's really, you know, there's really no nine to five job in the entertainment industry. No. And as the CEO of one of the largest live event companies in the country, how do you maintain a good work life balance? And is there advice you can give to others, whether it be music or something else, you know, just to help with that in their lives? It Work-life balance, I, I think, is, is a challenge for everybody in every industry. I don't think in the entertainment business, is it's uniquely different. I, I think that we're a lot like a, a salesman or someone who has to travel a lot. So I think that's the, the added challenge. Um, I feel really badly for the our employees that are gone four to six weeks at a time and away from their families for so so long. Um, it, it, it's, it's just it's just a constant struggle. I I don't have I'm a single father. Full I have my son full time, and it's it's really hard you know to leave for two or three weeks at a time and have to you know go away from him but sometimes you you just know this is what I have to do this is my job this is the career I've chosen and it's how I put food on the table and when I'm with him I'm 100% with him and when I'm not there I'm calling him every day and I'm staying connected and I'm doing homework you know by FaceTime and thank god you know we've got this technology that yeah, I feel bad for the guys that did it 50 years ago and they didn't have the technology. And you know what? Your son probably thinks, you know, you're the coolest dad in the world. He does not. Uh, like, I, I always like to think that even Mick Jagger, his kids probably thought he wasn't cool when they were, you know, 10, 12 years old. No matter who you are, to your kids, you're just not cool. <laughs> Well, Ryan has a kid on the way, so we'll be able to talk about that pretty soon. Ryan, we'll do a separate podcast on that. I, I have a, a lot to say. <laughs> hey, man, I'm uh, definitely down for that one. Yeah. So what are your plans for Sonic Temple? I know that you and AEG had very different opinions, obviously, for um, what that should be. Um, do you want to make it massive like EDC or Lollapalooza? And grow it like that, or what? What are your plans? So the the venue, you know, has a physical capacity limit. 
and that was that's one of the challenges, right? Rock and the or not Sonic Temple now, but Rock of the Range then could never be a hundred thousand a day. The the demand was there. I think we could have. If we didn't have the physical limitations, I think that show could have gotten to fifty thousand a day, which would have been really something. So, so instead, our feeling to grow Sonic Temple is to make it a more and more premier experience, and try to give more and more for your money, make it more and more of a, of a rock mecca, something that you have to attend at some point in your. Life, if you're a rock fan, and ultimately that's that's somewhat ta- largely talent driven, but it's also experience driven. You want it to be something that people are going, you know, I, no matter what, I'm going. I don't care who the headliners are, I'm going because it's just such a unique experience, and that's what we the tip of the iceberg this year. You know, sure. started to introduce. Sure, absolutely. And, uh, you know, speaking of something that recently just happened this year in regards to Sonic Temple, uh, you know, the wholesale of the Columbus crew had a lot of us uh, nervous. Uh, we weren't sure what the logistics were between who owned Matt Free Stadium, who had the rights, if the crew ended up moving to Austin, were we just screwed or whatnot. You know, can you enlighten the fans a little bit on what went down? Uh, if anything, and you know, was the future of Sonic Temple ever in jeopardy because of this? No, the, 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 there was just a long period of, of, of like you're saying, uncertainty of was the sale going to happen? When would it happen? Um, we're obviously, you know, and, and understandably, the tail wagging the dog a little bit in that bigger picture of the soccer conversation. So it wasn't like we were, we just weren't getting addressed um, right away. And there was that time when we started looking for an alternative site because we just wanted to be certain that if it went against us, that we had a place to go. And did you have a place? I mean, was there some places that you were not necessarily in talks with, but certain other alternatives that were looking feasible at the time? There were, there were, there were a few places that I think we, we kind of kept back pocket. Uh, there had been some public uh, issue over this area called Smith Farms that we were, look, that we were looking at that the, that the city had taken us out to see. Um, but, but ultimately, both you know, the, the, the old ownership and the new ownership understood the importance of having this festival in Columbus and certainly the city and, and, and Governor Kasich, who we're very close to and, you know, who comes, you know, every year to the festival, ha- had a lot to say about making sure people paid attention and, and, and kept us there. Sure. And something I kind of noticed over the years in my first year going to Rock on the Range was uh, 2010, but I noticed you know, whether it's ROTR, Louder Than Life, Welcome to Rockville, Aftershock, all of those places, uh, the headliners, you know, so bands like Disturbed, Papa Roach, Corn, they're all mainstays at these festivals, and they're all amazing bands, but I'm kind of waiting for the next generation to take that step to become that headlining type, and I feel that I'm still waiting, and it's not to say that there's not amazing bands at the smaller level. I really enjoy going to these festivals, honestly, for the lower-level groups, and I'll get to that, but what do you think is holding some of these younger bands back from getting to that top tier on festivals, or is it just a matter of the cycle changing naturally? I think it's a it's a it's a semantic issue more than anything, because all of the bands 
that headline our festivals were once upon a time alternative, considered alternative. And they were, they were you know, on the top of the charts on, on stations like K-Rock here in Los Angeles. The, the problem is as alternative, you know, whatever today's hot bands are, are now considered alternative, and suddenly all these older alternative bands are classified as, as rock. And there's this like artificial line between what's new and, and old. And I, I think it's just like you know, more of your generational thing maybe of you know, the new doesn't want to get associated with the old. But over time, that does change and you start to see bands that maybe you know, five years ago were playing Coachella or Lollapalooza that are now starting to play our festivals. And, and that's just... That's just sort of the life cycle of being the fresh, shiny new toy, uh, and then once you become a little more established, and then there's now a new shiny new toy, uh, you become the next rock band. True, and that's why I spoke, you know, on the bottom of the bill in my last question. I love going because I get to discover a lot of these bands that I never would have discovered otherwise, and I always chuckle at all these people, you know, you know they can do whatever they want. Uh, but they go tailgate all day in the parking lot and then go in just for the headliners, which is just insane to me. I love to go in when the gates open. You know, I like to check out as many groups as I can, obviously. Uh, that's what I'm there for is the music. Uh, how do you find these groups that are so relatively unknown, but you can tell they're meant for the festival stage? I consider myself a a pretty advanced musical curator, if you will, and even I have a hard time finding some of these bands that you guys bring to the limelight. Honestly, it changes their career. Yeah, I mean, that that credit really goes to Gary Spivak uh, and and Danny Wimmer and the the talent team. That that you know Gary Spivak that's his full time job, and no one is better than him at staying up on music. And uh, I mean, I, I remember wow, was it maybe three years ago now we get an email a company-wide email from Gary saying, come with me to the Roxy tonight to see that this band called Greta Van Fleet that I'm telling you is the next big one. And, you know, he was right. And, and we get those emails every now and then. You know, Fever 333 is another one that early on he started telling us, hey, guys, start paying attention. Right, This, right. this one's going to go. Right, and you just have to have that ear for that talent, and I guess that goes into being an A&R and all of that. Uh, that's literally the job, and I guess that's an easy skill to transition to the festival industry, which is pretty cool. As far as listeners, and like I said before, many of our listeners are in bands or are musicians themselves, and of course, there's such a saturation of talent depending on your genre uh, of choice, and especially with millennials like us, you know, we love we, we love our instant gratification, uh, but it takes a lot of patience to get to that level of performing at, say, a DWP uh, event. What advice do you have for some of these bands who have their eyes on someday playing in front of, say, 30,000 people? Uh, what would you say to them as far as what steps they can take and how they can get the attention of people like yourself? So I, I think you actually really just nailed it, right? This The concept of instant gratification. You know, I, I always say I believe people win the lottery, but I don't buy lottery tickets. You know, I, I choose to work for it. And every for every artist that suddenly seems to blow up out of nowhere and has that, you know, quote-unquote lucky break, there was another 10 that earned it the old-fashioned way. 
I, I still look at it as it's like a, running a political campaign. I, I, it's, it's going person to person nowadays. You know, the, the, instant gratif- the flip side of the instant gratification is everybody expects direct contact. And you've got to painfully build your audience one at a time, two at a time. Uh, there's a great book I just read called Tribes. It's, it's not a new book, but I just read it recently called Tribes. And man, anyone trying to build a following should read that book. You know, it's one person at a time finding those five and 10 and 20 core followers who help spread the word uh, and, and having the patience to do it. It just, it's not overnight. So talking about overnight success and instant gratification, do you think that that has any longevity to it or no? Just, you, you never know, right? The pre- they're, 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 once you're, you've made it, the pressure is still on to deliver the next record. And the next single, and the next this, and the next that, and, and and you know, and the hardest thing for bands and artists that make it quickly is do they have the work ethic to sustain it? Because so basically, people that have worked for it have more longevity yeah. because they're used to working for it. You know, there are people, there are guys like Dave Grohl that just get it. I mean, as big as Dave Grohl is, he could be lazy, but it right. But I'm telling you from behind the scenes. No one works harder than Dave Grohl. At, at Sonic Temple, when we were having the weather issues and evacuated, there were artists whose names I will not mention that were unwilling to consider alternative scenarios. Like, oh, hey, maybe playing a smaller stage that's, that's still safe or uh, doing an acoustic set instead of a full set. Dave Grohl went to Danny Wimmer, sought him out, and said, hey, man, I just want you to know whatever I need to do to actually perform today, I'll do. If you need me to play the side stage, if you want me to play acoustic, if you want to move this to a club, but I'm, I want to play. And, and, it, and it just blew us away that you know, here's the biggest star in our genre today still acting like he's coming up. And other artists just not getting that. Sure, and, you know, that just shows how much he loves doing what he does. You know, some artists get wrapped up in the whole you-have-to-scratch-my-back, you know, mentality, and it doesn't seem like he's the type that's like that, you know. He's very down-to-earth, which is essentially a lost art in itself with a lot of, you know, these A-listers. I think it's, it's, it's that, and it's also just knowing that if you want to stay on top, you got to work as hard as you worked to get to the top. And, and that, that, was, that was the message to me about it. And I, I just, I was really impressed. Uh, and I'm always impressed with artists that, that want to work that hard. Sure, right, right. And that's kind of why I love doing this podcast, because I would never have known that story. And I don't think any of our listeners would have known that story. And now we see that, we hear that, and we're like, we already all love the Foo Fighters. But that just brings it to a whole new level that's just, very admirable to be honest you know uh, to switch gears here one of the things that i've always loved about dwp events is you know whether it's louder than life sonic temple the other ones uh, there's a really good mixture of that mainstream modern rock as well as the heavier more brutal bands i personally uh, it's no secret i'm i'm part of the heavier's better crowd i love the mosh pits the circle pits the crowd surfing, you know, all of that. But at the same time, it has to be really hard to appease every fan base because, you know, 
you have a very diverse crowd of people that come to these festivals. Some people only like bands like Five Finger Death Punch and Breaking Benjamin. Some people only like bands like Suicide Silence and Whitechapel. So you have to balance them both so that, okay, you know, you're not going to have half of this fan base not come this year because there's not enough heavy bands or another half not come because there are too many heavy bands. So I got to imagine, you know, it's pretty challenging. Yeah, I mean, but you start off with accepting that you're not going to make everyone happy. No matter what you do, right, someone's going to complain. And it's like politics that way. You, you, you know, you're never going to make everybody happy. It's impossible. It's a physical impossibility. So we, we accept that. And then, you, you, and then you're also limited by what's on tour or what's willing to work that year. People don't always understand that, that some years there just aren't the, the bands out there. And, and Danny Wimmer is probably the best in the business at what we call getting you off the couch, you know, when a band isn't otherwise planning to work. I think Danny's better than anybody at going to the bands and the management and convincing them to do one-offs. But sometimes, you know, you're, you're dealt a hand and these are the bands you have to work with. Uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. And you're just you're doing the best with what you've actually got in that year. Sure, absolutely. And I think everybody would like to know, since you are so immersed in this all day, every day, you know, what do you like to listen to in your spare time? I mean, do you listen to this kind of music on your way home and on your porch or whatever? Or do you like to take a break from it since it is, you know, a big part of your day job? So a couple different answers. My, my commute home is eight minutes, so I usually use it to call my mother. What a commute in Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah, so I use it to usually call my mother and, you know, get that checked off. But, um, and then I, I, I listen to a lot of books. I'm, a, I'm really a voracious reader, and I've found that, you know, books, you know, audiobooks are a great way to consume uh, but I always, you know, music's a big part of my life. It's always been a big part of my life. And I'm a really diverse music taste. I think music's all about your mood in a, in a given moment. And, you know, there are days I've got the, you know, the hard metal playlist going. And there's days I've got, you know, soft jazz in the background. Cause it just really depends on my mood. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, last one for me. I know you got to run. Uh, how do you stay grounded? You meet and talk to rock stars literally every day. You have what so many of us would call a dream job. And I know, at least for me, I would have a tough time keeping my head out of the clouds, you know. I'm sure there are times where you have to pinch yourself. Do you ever ask yourself, you know, is this a dream? Um, but while doing so, how do you remain focused? I mean, I can imagine that that's probably pretty difficult sometimes. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think of it in those terms, I think. And to me, you know, I became in, when I became an entertainment lawyer, it was because I loved music, right? Music drove my life, but I knew I could never do what they do. And to have a hand in bringing that to the world and you know particularly as a lawyer i think the thing that was exciting for me was knowing that when a band made it and i actually had a role in in helping that happen and now that band's influencing people the way my heroes influenced me i, I look at it as a privilege 
right? I, I don't think I, I, it's not something that I carry a, a, a chip on my shoulder or have ego about. It's a privilege that I get to do that. And I, I, when I when I stand at the show, looking out at the crowd and seeing you know thirty thousand, forty thousand people just going crazy. I feel privileged that I got to help create that moment. So Ryan and I have one last question to continue our trend here. Um, what's the craziest thing you have seen at one of your events? Huh? Crazy? You know, it, 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 you have to almost categorize that question because <laughs> there's, you know, the the craziest things from a production standpoint. There's the craziest things from artist standpoint there's craziest things from fan standpoint there's there there's so there's so many different levels to that you know for for us personally you know weather is just the craziest thing because we don't control it and we feel we we feel uh you know a, a victim to it just like the fans and we're at we're at the weather's mercy um you know, there's some artists who I, I can't mention their names that I'm just shocked at their behavior. And, you know, whether it's taking a dump in the dressing room or telling a runner that they're not allowed to talk to them. And it, 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 that kind of behavior is just so disappointing because it, I, I, don't, I don't get, or, or, the, or the thing I hate too is, when when big bands come in and they like gotta clear the hallway like the queen is coming through, right, yeah, yeah. and and it's like I are, are you kidding me? Or the, I think the thing the fans would be the most surprised to hear, because I, city officials I'm always having to explain this one, is that many bands their attitude is they own the stage, and so I'm not even allowed on, on the side stage during their performance unless I have a special pass from them. And it's like, you got to be kidding me, right? I mean, I, I'm paying for all this, and I can't even go side stage. Right. Wow. That, that's incredible. Uh, I'd have to say, if I had to answer that question myself, just from being a patron this year, uh, with Gojira, uh, the pyro incident that happened, yeah. uh, where it was really windy, and the flames shot up, and it got their guitarist right in the face. He walked off for half a song, came back and finished. I don't know too many people that would do the same. No, that that, that there's we have some incredible photos of that. I didn't I didn't see it happen. Um but the photos were 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 just amazing uh that I saw. Hmm. I'll have to check those out for sure. Uh so hey, we are really, you know, appreciative of you taking the time out today to talk to us. I know that a lot of our listeners and fans of the Danny Wimmer Presents festivals will be really excited to listen to this. And hey, if you ever want to come back on anytime, we are always happy to have you. Hey guys, I, I appreciate you having me on. And one of my favorite things in the world is is to pay forward, you know, the knowledge that I've gained. And there were a lot of people who helped me along the way. There are a lot of people who still help me along the way. And having the opportunity to pay some stuff forward is, is, is really, really important to me. Uh, so I appreciate you having me on. And anytime you've got a hot burning question, you know, let me know. Louisville, Kentucky, louder than life.
returns. Three full days, September 27th through the 29th, Highland Festival Grounds, with its biggest lineup ever. Guns N' Roses. Slipknot. Disturbed. Get up, get up, go! Rob Zombie. Godsmack. Marilyn Manson. A Day to Remember. Breaking Benjamin. Hailstorm. Chevelle. Plus, The Return of Stain. I'm on the outside. I'm looking at... And a special appearance by Ice Cube. Anywhere Ice Cube's on to LabyrinthLifeFestival.com for all ticket and lineup information. Guns N' Roses, Slipknot, Disturbed, Rob Zombie, Dump Smack, and many more. Highland Festival Grounds at the Kentucky Expo Center. Celebrate bourbon and the best rock. See ya at Louder Than Life. Wow. What an interview. We were so fortunate to talk to Danny Hayes, CEO of Danny Wimmer Presents. Um, I really appreciate everybody who's tuned in. Uh, anybody who's new listeners, anybody who's been listening for a while now, uh, it's been uh, a wild ride, and I really hope to continue this for quite some time. Um, next week, I believe, uh, if not two weeks, we have Mark Hunter, the former lead singer, frontman, uh, now you know film director, uh, jack of all trades from Chimera. Uh, he will be on the episode. Uh, next week or in two weeks. I have to check the calendar. Um, so make sure you tune in. Please subscribe, rate five stars, follow us on iTunes and Spotify. Um, and hey, as always, we're out. <laughs> <laughs>